there's the thumb of authority. Okay, here we go, mate, we think. Uh, February 27, 2022. My goodness, hard to say that. Lecture discussion number 164 on the book of Joel. Uh, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Genesis 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3. And I'm going to start with this, with this Russian advancement. If I could write down what I think would happen as contemporarily with respect to Ezekiel 38, it would be exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing. He is replicating, he's replicating the German invasion of Poland in 1939. He's doing the same kind of thing. He's trying to take territory. And I understand why he's trying to take territory. Because his country, GDP, is uh, behind uh, California, Texas, and New York. So if those were countries, all three of those have a higher GDP than the Russian GDP. So uh, Ukraine has tremendous amounts of resources. Uh, they have fertile ground for food production, for example. And he also wants to re- recover the glory of the Soviet Union. You can see that in his ego. That is very reminiscent of Adolf Hitler. Hitler wanted to put a, together a Third Reich, and so they grabbed territory in order to make themselves more powerful and to enrich themselves. It's been going on uh, ever since there's been a mankind. We take over land of somebody that has something that uh, we don't have, whether it be uh, material or whether or not it be food cap- capability. In this case, it is, uh, I believe, he's going for spoil. And that's a valuable thing to know. That's Ezekiel 38.4, 38.13. The hook that we've always talked about. He's invading the Ukraine, but uh, eventually he has to keep invading. He's invaded Chechnya. He invaded the Crimea. Now he's invading Ukraine. So it's very logical for us to recognize that he might indeed try to invade Israel at some point, especially if the United States diminishes in any way. I'm also paying attention to the the Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea uh, formation. All of those are in concert with each other. I recognize, of course, that there's rumors that China is trying to pressure uh, Putin because um, he is putting his economic structure in great uh, jeopardy. He may not have an economy at the rate he's going. The United States and the European Union have uh, responded in a way I don't think he was prepared for, and uh, the possibility they can crash the Russian ruble is very, very high, and that would re- that would affect his ability to pay the Chinese, for example, and then so their trading system would be impacted because one side would be broke and still wanting goods and services, so our foods uh, food systems. So anyhow, I just want you to point out that or I just wanted to point out that we could easily see, and people talk about it all the time. We could see Russia, of course, continue this offensive against uh, Ukraine. China has already say that, already said that Ukraine is the is Taiwan's future. So to see them simultaneously present a two front uh, possibility, just much like what Germany and Japan did back in World War or the second half of the World War the second phase of the World War. So you can see that. But then, of course, you have Iran, which would easily love to attack Israel. So we could see that occur. Now, what North Korea does is anybody's guess because of the uh, the deficiency in, in uh, uh, maturity, I guess, for lack of a better word. But we have leaders who are in, in North Korea and now in Russia that look like madness has overcome them. So that's a very interesting thing for those of us who want to watch 
the end of the age of the Gentiles. Okay, so last week I ended with Genesis 15. Uh, the mystery of the two birds, which is actually just one facet of Genesis 15. It's one of the many mysteries that comprise the extended mystery that is Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is unbelievable. Uh, Genesis 15 requires that one first assembles all of the Genesis 15 mysteries before attempting to solve a singular Genesis 15 mystery. So you've got to go find all the mysteries first. And there are, there's a myriad of them. And, and this process in itself is going to require patience and endurance because each of the Genesis 15 mysteries consists of a multitude of components. So you're going to find the mysteries. You're going to find all the components. You've got to go assemble them all. Now you've got, you've got, say you just got one mystery. Everything that goes to that mystery to figure out that mystery. Now you've got a whole bunch of other mysteries that before you can solve the entirety, the singular mystery of Genesis 15 because there's a, there's a, everything contributes to the, to the whole. And you have to find the whole is the, is the goal in Genesis 15. So get the multitude of components, resolve them. And at first, you've got to find them for that matter. Locate where they are because they're not in Genesis 15. They're everywhere. And by, by saying that uh, what we, and by we I mean me, uh, so me. I attempted to demonstrate some of that last week. The two birds, for example, interconnect uh, with Leviticus 14, 2 Kings 5, Luke 4:27, Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 20, Ecclesiastes 12:7, 1 Timothy 3:14 through 16, and that's a reference. All of that just as a reference to get to this. The take me. I hope that I established the take me last week because the take me comma because that is incredibly important. And I think it's obvious that it is take me and not bring me. And that's Genesis 15.9. And that, the reference, the take me of Genesis 15.9 is that which answers the question, the great question of Abraham in Genesis 15.8. That is the how can I know question that Abraham gives us. That's the salvation question. How can I know that I will have salvation, that I will have eternal life? I will never have anything but eternal life. How can I know that? And that is how God responds to that question. It is with the take me. Take me. That's how you're going to know. So what is the take me? Obviously the take me is the mystery of godliness. First Timothy 3.16. It is the greatest of all mysteries. So these two, these are the same if you want to think of them that way. They're forming a unit again. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, the mystery of godliness. Uh, and so the take me mystery is never going to be known because it is what? This is the greatest of all mysteries. Unsolvable. The take me refers to the greatest of all mysteries and the greatest of all mysteries refers to the take me. So are we going to solve the take me? We are not going to solve the take me because it is an infinite condition. And as fortune has shined down upon me last week, I received a letter. Not really a letter. It was an email. And Dave, if he exists, did not bring it in time. If he had, well, I'd still be talking about last week. Last week, this week. Uh, so once again, this is Dave's fault. He could have handed me this 
He told me it existed, which was ironic because we don't know if he exists. How can something that doesn't exist talk about existence? But he did. So we have all those issues. Anyway, the letter is from Gabriel. I don't know where Gabriel's from. I can't, if I did know, I would be uh, willing to say so just so that he knows it's him that we're talking about. But he'll know in a, in a second as, as soon as I read this. And, and I believe all of you are going to find his, uh, con, uh, his uh, contemplative considerations to be intrinsically applicable to the take me. He gave me the take me is what he did. And thus the two birds that are the sub-mystery. See, I have mystery. I have the great mystery of the take me. And then I have all the sub-mysteries that contribute to the take me. Ultimately, First Timothy 3.16 being one of the places that you go first. So you understand that this is the greatest mystery of all time. And probably will never be fully known. Okay? So the two birds way down the ladder. That's okay. So I'm going to read uh, Gabriel's letter. And uh, I think uh, you will find it, how do I put it, eccentric, maybe, no, uh, scholarly, oh, absolutely. So here we go. He starts out with, I'm not sure if you guys could see, oh, no, that's what you wrote. Uh, I assume that Gabriel wrote this. I was weird before I came to Cliffside, and Cliffside hasn't made me any less weird. He wrote that. Well, that's exactly, that's our new motto. I've been thinking about the geometry of New Jerusalem, the math. There's always math. There's never not math, and, and it's wonderful. And the geometry of the New Jerusalem is very, very important because of who wrote it. That was the Apostle John. So what do I know already? I know things just by that. I've been thinking about the geometry of the New Jerusalem, which Pastor Steve touched on in the last lecture. While the angel with the golden rod reed measures it and gives an apparently Euclidean measurement or measure of volume, saying its width, breadth, and height are equally equally to 12,000 stadia with 144 cubic walls, cubit walls. Sorry, I said cubic. So I had 12,000 stadia, and I have 144 cubits. I would read better if I could see. I'd put my glasses on to see, but I can't see with my glasses. Begs the question. Get new glasses. I have glasses that I can see with, but they make me dizzy. How can we tell your thinking? <laughs> Let me repeat it. While the angel with the golden rod reed measures it and gives an apparently Euclidean, Euclidean measure of volume, saying its width, breadth, and height, are equally 12,000 stadia with 144 cubit walls. And he puts the question, thickness? Is this the thickness? Does this necessarily imply a Euclidean three-space topology? I can imagine type topologies in which from the outside they appear Euclidean with finite surface area, but which have infinite volume within. It's bigger on the inside, exclamation point. Like a flat hyper-three torus, for a crude example, where the inner surface of each wall of a cube is equal to the others, such that an infinite, oh, uh, from the other, from inside, you could approach one wall floor ceiling and entering it, you exit one of the others, such that an infinite length can be contained within it, even though its outer dimensions are finite. Probably a bit too much to mention in the Sunday morning, or, or, or in the morning on Sunday. Ha! Apparently not. Yeah, <laughs> 
<laughs> I am late with my comments, but wouldn't it make sense that since Scripture itself is multi-tiered, having both superficial and even deeper infinite meaning, all contained within the finite text, that the topology, topology of heaven, the New Jerusalem in this case, is similar. If we can even speak of heavenly topology at all, I find it hard to imagine that it would have the same limitations of space and time that we experience in this earthly life and these corporal tents experientially locked in an arrow of time. Experientially. Experience locked in an arrow of time. Just thoughts. Always rejoicing with all the great salvation we share in Christ. I'm thanking God for you. Uh, Gabriel. Okay. Now, I know all of you are familiar with Euclidean three-space type topology. That's right. Everybody learns that, I think, third, fourth grade, somewhere in there. I'm, I'm not positive about that. But you also know about flat hyper-three torus. Let me put that on the board. A flat hyper-three torus. A torus is a bagel. You want to think of it uh, as a geometric shape. But this is a flat bagel. So you've got a bagel or a donut, whatever you wish, and it's completely flat. That is a two-dimensional representation uh, of a torus. Okay? So we start with that. <sighs> Where am I? And, the, and, and when we get into these kinds of discussions, we have to bring in Zeno. The Greek philosopher, Greek mathematician. Because what we're talking about is the concept of finity containing infinity. So, and, uh, I can't review much of it, but just to give you a brief cursory understanding as best I can. Okay, perhaps in the great vast cliffside internet, there's somebody out there, one straggler who needs a little bit more information. Uh, other than just what I've done, I've done. So let me give, let me get, take a shot at that. Somebody that hasn't uh, reflected on Euclidean geometry for a while, for example. And so, for the sake of that one person, because we always go after the straggler, I'm going to try to initiate the best review I can as quickly as I can. I should interject that Gabriel has, before I brought it in front, uh, before before I brought it to the front last week. What did I talk about last week? I said there's a principle, Isaiah 55. Eight through nine. Oops, I forgot the eight. The Isaiah 55, eight through nine principle. And so I hadn't read this until I got, got it later on the week when I started to look at it. And, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts is the Isaiah 55, eight through nine principle. His thoughts are ad infinitum, which means they're what? They're infinite. Endlessly higher, he says, than the thoughts of mankind, animals, and the angelic. So his thoughts are not the same as our thoughts. They, they go like everywhere. Nonetheless, we should try, he wants us to try to think like him, to step in his footsteps as best, best we can, to follow along, follow behind, try to line ourselves up. That's what prayer ultimately is. When you pray for something and you get it, you go, wow, I lined up with God. Or I was just lucky. 
But you're trying to line your thoughts up with God's thoughts. You want, you want to think His thoughts as much as you can. The ones He's revealed to us, you'll never think His thoughts. Why not? He has infinite thoughts. We'll never have that. So we should attempt to abandon our paltry, feeble thoughts and strive to imagine what God has designed. And that's what Gabriel is doing here. He's trying to figure out how did he design this city of New Jerusalem, which is where these 144 cubit thick walls, notice I agreed with him, I absolutely do think the 144 cubits are the thickness of the walls of this new city of Jerusalem, and how now they come into this discussion. 144 cubits is 216 feet. That's how thick the walls are. So, now what is the most obvious of the obvious questions? What's in the walls is a wonderful question, but why? That leads to why are the walls that specific depth or thickness? Why has God made these walls this specific depth? It's Revelation 21.17. And if you're assuming that the 216 feet, which is what I read all the time, 216 feet of thickness is required by the municipality of Anchorage in order to get a permit, if that's your plan... Because that's the required traditional structural engineering thickness to support something that is 1400, well actually it's 1380 stadia high. That's the Greek measurement. 1380. No, that's not correct. Yeah, I believe, no, no, I'm correct. I'm, I'm, I'm commingling here. A stadia is 1307 feet is one stadia. 1,380 miles would be 12,000 stadia. Now, approximately, which is very interesting, it's approximately 1,380 miles. Okay? But if you thought that this is necessary in order to support 1,380 miles high building, if you want to think of it that way, then uh, you are not, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that that's traditional structural engineering and I, and I might suggest that God's structural engineering is not man's structural engineering. We don't know what those walls are made out of. We had not even begun to imagine it. But as Dave blurted out perfectly just a few minutes ago, what's inside? 216 foot thick. What's in the wall? What are they made out of? So, the new city of Jerusalem is is 1,380 miles high by most reckoning. They'll, reckoning. they'll say 1,400 miles, but I, I don't know about that. I just happen to notice that that 1,380 miles is really close to 1,377 miles. And we can't really tell for sure exactly what a Greek stadia is. We don't know. We don't know what John wrote in. Obviously, I, I take the position that he wrote in Hebrew. So we don't know exactly the perfect... Uh, how do I put it, to the, the resolution of exactly what that's, that distance is. So you can get out your phones and you can calculate the weight of 216 feet of concrete and rebar that is 1,380 miles high or 1,377. If I get to pick, why would I pick 1,377? So close, 1,380. Why would I do that? And then you can appraise the uh, number of uh, of the and the depth and the diameter of the pilings you're going to have to drive to support all that concrete, right? If, if that's what you're thinking, and most people that 
and analyze this, they're assuming that the walls support the building, if you will. Foundation system, right? And you get all of that done. Next, I want you to conclude that God doesn't think like that. And try again. Obviously, God prefers this number 12. There, there's The square root of 144 is 12. There's 12 gates. There's 12,000 stadia. There's 12 angels. There's 12 foundations. He, he wants 12 to be intimately involved in this mathematics of this building. Why does he give us the mathematics of the building? We can't even comprehend it. We can't even imagine it. We can try. But he gives it to us anyway. So what do you suppose is his purpose? 12 is critical information. 216, if you take 216 feet and you divide it by 12, you get 18. And people have known that for centuries. As soon as the feet came out out to play, we began to input feet into this calculation of this uh, new city of Jerusalem. 18 is 9 times 2. Everybody knows that. 3 squared plus times 2. And those who have devoted themselves to the meaning of numbers and the geometry of the Hebrew language have made a strong case that the number 9, and I believe they're correct, number 9 represents in, in the Bible the finality of judgment or the certainty or the conclusion of a matter. And this application, the completeness of judgment, that's what 9 represents. And obviously, Ecclesiastes now 12, 13, and 14 comes into play. Because here comes, here comes Solomon. He's going to chime in. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, he says. That's the last words of Solomon. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Believe God. Keep his commandments. For this is man's all. This is all man can do. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So God will judge everything, every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is the conclusion of the whole matter. That's what we should know. Solomon made it clear already in Ecclesiastes 12.7. Actually, all of Ecclesiastes 12. Um, Ecclesiastes 12.1.12.6.12.7 being the most uh, decisive of what he's thinking. If you want to want to look at it that way, the irrevocability of those verses. Solomon has presented the case in his book of or in the Ecclesiastes that the physical death of the body is not the conclusion of the whole matter. Society today, philosophy today, uh, academic philosophy, atheistic philosophy believes that the death of the body is the conclusion of the matter. Solomon says, "Oh no, it's not." The judgment of God is the closure. The whole matter culminates with judgment. And therefore the number, the number nine is a summation of the works of mankind, the end of all things to man. E.W. Bullinger, Ethelbert, that's why he calls himself E.W. because he was given the name Ethelbert. Ethelbert W. Bullinger, uh, he died in 1913, he wrote that the alphanumerical value of the word Dan, the tribe of Dan, means judge, means judgment in Hebrew. And it uh, and these kinds of things, and you start finding things like 9 times 6 equals 54, for example. Dan has a sum of 54. It's 9 times 6. 
So you have, and nine is what? Nine and six have this wonderful relationship. I'll get to that in a minute. Nine and six, I could, one is the inversion of the other. Man has a number, six, right? Humanity is a sixth. The Antichrist, 666, that great mystery. Why are there three sixes? But, uh, um, amen are verily, are truly, has a gematria of 99. The sum of all the 22 Hebrew letters is 4995. And if you do, that's five times 99. So he's, Solomon obviously would know this. He was a mathematical, biological genius. He had wisdom. He asked for wisdom and he got it. And he thought about things. Grace and judgment uh, uh, is uh, five times 99. Grace would be five. 99 would be judgment. Two nines of judgment. Uh, nine is three times three. Six is three plus three. So once again, nine and six are, are sitting side by side here almost. Nine and three, I'm sorry, nine and six are considered to be simpatico, a closeness. Uh, the numerologists have long thought that, and they have measured the numerological value or the numerical value in Hebrew and Greek languages and come up with that view. Solomon insists that life under the sun is comparatively irre- irrelevant when one considers the throne judgment. Often, he says over and over and over again in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. But his conclusion is, under the sun doesn't matter. The matter is judgment. You've got to think about judgment. Not about anything under the sun. Under The body is, again, comparatively ir- irrelevant. Up against the throne judgments of Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Mm-hmm. He says it. He lays it out in in in, in uh, Ecclesiastes 12. That's his final thoughts. Oh, that's right. There's a guy with a song out there that's just brilliant. But my point is, yea, finally a point is that I'm trying to point out. Oh, another point that 144 ends up being about judgment somehow numerologically. So, and for those of you who are interested in these subjects or, or have been interested, there have been 27 sieges of the city of Jerusalem. That would be nine times what? 27 sieges of the city of Jerusalem. The 28th is going to be by the Antichrist. Zechariah 12, 1 through 3, 12, through, 12 4 through 9, Zechariah 14, 1 through 2, and Micah 4, 11 through 5, 1. Haggai 1.11 lists nine judgments. So you see this nine show up as judgment, which is the conclusion of the whole matter. And that is inside of this mathematical structure that God has given us with respect to the new city of Jerusalem. The point again, really, wow, another point, uh, amazing. The number nine is prominent in Scripture and it shows up in the thickness of the walls of the new city of Jerusalem. And I could keep doing 144 divided by 9, 216 divided by 9, 144 divided by 8, 216 divided by 12, 216 divided by 8. I could keep doing all of that, and I feel free to get your phones out and do all all that. But my the one that I like the most 
is we don't know for sure that this 1380 is correct. And it is a miles reference. We're converting it to miles, 5,280 feet. So there's some issue here, but I, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people have figured out there's a relationship between 100, or 1,377 and 17, as well as 9. So, let me continue. 9, of course, is the last of the ordinal, I'm sorry, of the basic numbers, the single digits. So the last digit represents judgment, the last matter. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then we get double digits, right? So the last of the single digits is a judgment thing. And all the aforementioned there that I just brought up to bring to the forefront the study of the meanings of the dimensions of the new city of Jerusalem, that is what Gabriel has taken on to do. Off he goes. God has placed numerical mathematical evidences of how what he's thinking about. And his thoughts, again, are not our thoughts. Okay, so where was that? Gabriel's... Euclidean three-space topology, a flat torus in a three-dimensional space. And Zeno of Elea, I should put his, where he's from. Now, Zeno really, he is, he is referred to by the great philosophers of Greece. And so we know about him because they refer to him. He was a Greek philosopher and he's best known for his paradoxes. He was considered to be the genius of his time, a genius mind. And perhaps the most familiar of all of his paradoxes is the Zeno's race, a uh, runner and race paradox, sometimes demonstrated by an arrow. You'll hear it about an arrow or a bullet. Zeno proposed that a runner to complete his race, so we have a race. The first thing that the runner has to do to get to, to his race is get to halfway. Do you agree? He proposed that a runner to complete his race must first run one half the distance. Again, do you agree? It's a binary question. Yes or no? Never raise your hands here. Assuming that everyone agrees, everyone went, yes, in order to finish the race, I got to, I must first run halfway. Would you agree that once you are at the halfway point, that you must run, you must travel what? Another half. As well, do you agree with that? In order to finish the race. If you can see that the runner travels halfway of the remaining distances now, the runner can always travel one half of the remaining distance. Or the arrow, or the bullet, whichever way you want to form the paradox. Then, if he must always travel one half of the remaining distance, and he can travel one half of the remaining distance, then Zeno would tell you that motion and movement is an illusion then. There is no motion. There is no movement. Since the runner would complete an infinite number of efforts. Because there's an infinite number of half distances in that distance. Would you agree? Now here I'm going to put the word infinite on the board because this is where we're at. Remember, I made it look like an L. Remember that Gabriel said, is it possible for a finite structure to have an infinite volume? That was his point. So this takes you to Zeno. Because here I have a finite distance with infinite partitions. 
right? Ultimately, the sum of the distance traveled will have to, must equal the distance. But how do you get the entirety of the distance if you only go halfway? But, <coughs> but here, we have a thought experiment where the finite has an interaction with the infinite. Zeno's paradox is a finite pair distance that has an infinite characteristic to it. The sum of the infinite numbers equal the finite measurement. Perhaps you remember this topic when I brought it up a while back, and nobody remembers. Uh, no one is the answer to who remembers every time I ask it. God can divide motion. I said I brought the deck of cards. If I'm moving myself, he can be. I can be shown stationary. If I have a fast enough camera, to produce a bunch of cards of me moving, and as you riffle through the cards, you can see the movement. But each picture of me represents motionlessness, right? Remember that? Nobody ever remembers that. But I did that lecture a long time ago. God can divide motion into infinite segments. He can do that. Therefore, God can see motionlessness, which is a word. Motionlessness. Because Chronister's law of nessness, as you know, says you can add ness and or nus to any word and produce a word. So how many words can I produce with ness and nus? That's right. Infinite. Absolutely right. <laughs> okay. Jesus God, being infinite, can see all things stationary. He can see one card at a time if he chooses. He can stop motion completely. He is in, he's the one that set it in motion. He can do whatever he wants to with motion. He's outside of time, so he can stop time for himself from his frame of observation. And he can see every single division of motion. And since Jesus God, again, set all things in motion, his choosing of this, notice how I said choosing, is a, is a, a, a depiction, if you will. That's a poor word. It's an it's a evidence of his will. He can will to see motions and quite the advantage, this infinity that he has. How do you defeat somebody that can see everything motionless? You can't. How can you kill him? So the madness of, of the Antichrist is not madness after all. The madness is the people that believe the madness. So for today, note again the finite and the infinite synergy, communication, if you will. Every time you see the finite and the infinite together in some kind of positioning, then that is an interesting thing for you to consider because that's something that God has done. He has taken his infinity and he has put it into communication at least, a point of contact at least, with the finite. How does he do that? How do you do it? How do you do this take me stuff? Okay, for those of you who wish to further investigate a flat three torus, I would suggest that you uh, begin with uh, the mathematician John Nash, maybe the greatest mathematician outside of Isaac Newton. Extraordinary. He believed that he disproved uh, Einstein's relativity theories before he was killed in a car wreck with his wife. Nash is the primary place to start on, on flat three toruses. I'm going to offer you a cursory explanation that Gabriel gave it to you earlier, but um, you may not have listened. Why would you? Have you? Who does this? <laughs> Gabriel, for somehow knew I might do it. Huh? If you were to be inside of a flat three torus, now think again of a bagel. You're inside of a bagel, and now it's completely two-dimensional. 
but it's in a three-dimensional setting. So if you were inside of it, a flat three torus, and you look straight forward, you would see your back. That may not make any sense, but that's the mathematics of it. If you walked out the front of the flat three torus, you would enter the back of the flat three torus at this, almost the same time. If you looked up to the, looked to the right, you would see your left. If you looked to the left, you would see your right. If you looked up, you, uh, you would see the bottoms of your feet. That's a flat three torus, mathematically. And, of course, conceptually. And if you, if you had an object with you, which is the way it's most likely, or most often represented, and my, my example, when I taught some of this stuff, it's a, I used a helium-filled balloon. So you have a helium-filled balloon in your hand, and you're in a flat three torus. And uh, floating, and it's floating right next to you. And somehow, you can be invisible. Is invisible a word? It is now. The, uh, the verb invisible. You can be made invisible. Okay, somehow you become invisible. So, and ev- so every direction you now look, you wouldn't see yourself. You would see balloons. And you would see them infinitely in all directions. There's a balloon. You have that, that concept a little bit. If you stand in front of a mirror, there's a mirror behind you, and there's a mirror here, and there's a mirror here, and there's mirrors all around. You see images of yourself going off into very small sizes, ultimately, right? A flat three torus is, that's probably the best way you can imagine what it's like to be inside one. So once again, I have infinite balloons because inside of a flat three torus, your vision loops around. If you look right, it's coming into the left. So this is, this infinite looping of your vision is occurring. So once again, I have this point of contact between the finite and the infinite. And so Gabriel was wondering if the new city of Jerusalem is designed like this. He's, he's saying, is this how the new city of Jerusalem is, is designed? To reword this just a bit, to use Gabriel's wording, does the new city of Jerusalem have infinite area in a seemingly finite structure? So would the infinite God create a finite city that contains infinity? That, that's another way to form his question. Now, you know, I, I presented the view that there's 700 platforms, uh, a trillion acres. Gabriel's going, what if it's a flat three torus? And, and I mentioned that what this has more proximity to, and I didn't, I didn't do it, was the multidimensional position on the new city of Jerusalem, that there are multidimensions in it. And Gabriel's doing what? He's doing Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Everything you read isn't even close to what Gabriel's presenting on the new city of Jerusalem. It's all concrete and rebar stuff. And you just go, my gosh. In fact, I read positions uh, over the times where the 12,000 stadia isn't literal. What it is, is it's a, it's the cube of the co, of the, uh, it's a cube. It's describing the cube. So it would be 600 stadia, not 12,000. Gabriel's going the complete opposite, opposite direction. He's saying it's not, it's not this big. It's much bigger. In fact, it's infinitely bigger. It's a finite structure that contains an infinite area or volume. Okay? And, and now you get all, all kinds of questions. You've you got to have light in there. And if it's, got, it's, if it's an infinite area, what kind of light do I need? I need an infinite light. Well, who has one of those? An infinite vein. Who's that? Christ. And he says, I'm the light. I got infinite light. 
I can I can light up an infinite area. So the right now I got electrical systems operational. Okay, and Gabriel is correct. The Bible. This looks like a finite book, doesn't it? But it's not. It has infinity in it. It describes infinity. The Bible contains infinity and yet it appears to be finite. And so again, I have infinity inside affinity. Is the Bible the template then of the new city of Jerusalem? The Bible does indeed stretch out into infinity in all directions. Who wrote an infinite book? Who could possibly write an infinite book? Obviously, infinity must come from infinity. Animal souls and minds and consciousness and angelic souls and minds, our souls and minds, consciousness, the breath of the spirit of life, all of that stuff is eternal. It's immortal. What's eternity? Our minds are eternal. Our souls are eternal. Our consciousness is eternal. Or spirit eternal, use whatever words you wish. What is eternity? It's infinity. Eternity, infinity must come from infinity. Eternity must come from eternity. Everlasting must come from everlasting. Everlasting life must originate from everlasting life. I say light, I meant life. God, the infinite God, what did he do in Genesis 3 7? He put his breath inside of who? Adam. What did he do in Genesis 1, 21, 21, 124, 128, 130, 722, 715, Genesis 9? What did he do? He put his breath inside of animals. What's his breath? How big is it? How much does it weigh? What is, how can I describe the breath of God? Obviously, the infinite God has what kind of breath? Infinite breath. Now, most people would look at me and they would say, you are a finite structure. You have spatial extendedness. We know where you are. We can locate you. We know what you weigh. We know how much volume you displace. Not as much as I used to displace. That's what heart failure will do. Kidney failure. All of a sudden, you don't displace as much space. It wasn't necessarily a choice. (laughs) I was not, not leaning that direction at all. And here I am. I have spatial extendedness. I have location. Uh, I, I can be weighed. I can be described physically. The breath of God cannot, but his breath is inside me. The spirit of God, the spirit of the breath of God, the spirit of life is inside those whom he has saved. So again, I have infinite breath inside of what appears to be a finite structure. So, Thus, the temples that contain our souls, 1 Corinthians 6.19. You remember what he says there. Don't you know, he, Paul, don't you get it? He doesn't say you idiots, but it's implied. Don't you get it? Our current souls, our, our current bodies contain our souls, and, and that's a temple element there. That's currently infinity dwelling infinity. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in you whom you have from God? It's a rhetorical question. The implication again is that we don't know. And we don't know that we don't know. And we don't know what we don't know anyway. I'll conclude this portion. I want to praise um, 
praise for Gabriel's thinking. He has brought entanglement and a quantum entanglement and mathematics as it might apply to the new city of Jerusalem. And I submit that again that that's the Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 principle. Start thinking like this. Now, here's the one fantastic question. How much infinity have I described? I said the Bible has infinity. You have the infinite breath of the, uh, the Spirit of God in you. Uh, you have, you are immortal. Your destination is at risk, but not your eternity. You will be eternal. You are eternal. You are an eternal being. So how much infinity have I described? A lot of it. So now what's the obvious question? If you do this, I will just freak out. I will stop. If you give me this question, I will go, wow, I'm a genius. I'll quit. That'll be the end. Is there only infinity? So that'll be fun next week. Okay, back now to the infinite Genesis 15. I have to hurry. Obvi- Thank you, Gabriel, for doing that. Gave me almost 10 pages. Amazing. Already, it's obvious that infinity is in force within the take me because the take me, who's the me here? God is. That's Christ, right? Christ, that's the triune Godhood. Take me. Okay? And the triune Godhead is all over Genesis 15. It's omnipresent. Ha, ha, ha. In Genesis 15, it's omnipresent everywhere. So it's obviously omnipresent in Genesis 15. So, infinity is enforced with the take me of Genesis 15.9. And if you remember from last Sunday, and nobody ever remembers, lecture 163, for those of you who follow along, uh, this is the first time you've ever heard this weirdo. Uh, Everything that follows the take me is a portrait of the infinite Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything. Everything that it happens is portraying Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, Colossians 1.15 through 18, John 1, 1 through 4. Now, some may object to the vultures. They'll say, hey, wait a minute. The vultures are not portraying Christ. They're satanic. They're symbols of evil. They're symbols of uncleanness. They're fallen angel symbols. And the Hebrew translates vultures as ha-ayit. And that's probably not even close. You'll find the translations that say birds of prey. Others will say vultures. Jeremiah 12, 9 says speckled vultures. So that's that word. That's what it means. As best we can interpret it, translate it. So Israel, when it's called in Jeremiah 12.9, a speckled vulture, Israel has become a sinful bird that eats death and is surrounded by vultures that also eat death, waiting for that vulture to die so those vultures can eat that vulture. Did that make any sense? Good. Wow. So we have birds that eat carrion. They're unclean in contrast to what in Genesis 15? That's right, the pigeon and the turtle dove, which are examples of birds that are clean. So, how do the unclean birds, and everything portrays Christ. Rule one, everything portrays Christ. How does everything portray portray Christ? That's the question. It all does. Now, how does it do it? And why does it do it? So how do the unclean birds that descend to devour the dead portray Christ. Does does Christ devour the dead? Does he eat flesh that's dead? Does he have to be driven away? How do they portray Christ? But they do. question is, is, again, how do it? How do I have vultures portray Christ? And you might think that you have ensnared the HDRP 
He can't possibly answer this. He hasn't thought of it. You know, he just throws things out and doesn't even consider anything. Or maybe sometimes he plays chess. Like every, every day sometimes. Okay. How do these unclean birds that descend to devour the dead play, portray Christ? And you might think that I can't answer it. Well, the, the, we have Revelation 19, 17 through 18, Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. The word for birds at Ezekiel 39.17 is not Ha'ayat. It's a word that only occurs at 39.17 of uh, Ezekiel. I won't try to pronounce it, but it's L-S-I-P-P-O-W-R. And it's translated bird there. Now, why is 39.17 of Ezekiel and 19.17 of Revelation, why is that important? Because both of them are depicting the great supper of God where the army is eaten by the beasts and the birds. Revelation 19, 1917 is ornus, or, or, or onios, and there it's birds and fowl, those with wings that are flying in the mist of heaven. Birds are flying in the mist of heaven. Know that. How did they get there? And it says, the angel that's standing in the sun calls all of the birds that are flying in heaven to come to the supper of the great God because an army has been destroyed and now it's time to eat the flesh of those men. Remember that? And how many, he calls all the birds. And so what do you want to know? I want to know how how many is all. Yeah, how many birds are flying in heaven at Revelation 19:17? I'm just asking for a friend. If only I had a friend, would you say billions? Billions. Anyway, they're not carrion eating all of these birds. The vultures are. The eagles are. Crows, ravens, hawks. But most birds are not flesh eating. What's that? Will, will robins eat? Uh, do they? I know. I've watched these magpies try to kill a squirrel, and I and I know the I know the blue jays will try to kill squirrels too. Sometimes the blue jays and squirrels are good buddies against uh, some other predator, though. It's really interesting to watch them. They steal each other's food. It's fantastic. The squirrel will come down and steal the food that the blue jays have. Uh, the stellar jays, sorry, not blue jays. Stellar jays are hidden. Where am I? All of them. Is it your view that this position that they're only carrion eating and they're not? You'll discover that Ezekiel 39.17 says in the Hebrew to every sort of bird. So all the birds, irrespective of whether or not they're flesh-eating birds or not, become flesh-eating birds. My point is, fantastic a point, is that the vultures of Genesis 15.11 are specified as birds that eat dead flesh. But they do not eat the dead flesh of the animals that are cut in two by Abraham at Genesis 15.10. So what question do you have now? we got vultures coming down. Do they get to eat the, the carcasses? They don't get to eat it. Why not? Therefore, the most incredible of the obvious, incredible, obvious questions comes flying out. Whoops, you upside the head, boy. What stopped the vultures? Now, everybody will say Abraham stopped them. He chased them away. How many times did he chase him away? How many times did they come back? What, and all of that, 
leads to what did Abraham see? Remember that question last week? What did Abraham see that was so powerful that when he saw it, he knew that he was saved for all eternity? He knew that he would be, that he had been given everlasting life. He knew it. Didn't feel it. Knew it. He saw something. Goosebumps on his arms. He goes, man, I got it. I got everlasting life. There's no possibility I have anything but everlasting life. What did he see that taught him that, that made him know? Gotcha. The eight minutes for those of you who are trying to go to sleep. Do you agree with the overwhelming teaching of the commentarians? The predominant exegesis centers around the death of the animals when you're talking about Genesis 15, which signifies the penalty if either party defaults on the oath or the covenant. So they're saying that this is an oath or a covenant, and the animals portray death in this covenant. Put it in another way, okay? Most most people... Uh, okay, wait a minute. Everyone, all of them, you can't find a commentary that doesn't. I don't think you will. I've searched and searched and searched to find something that doesn't. And I know the Isaiah 55, 8-9 principle. My thoughts, commentary's thoughts, are not God's thoughts. So I have to be really careful here to make sure I don't fall for something that isn't right. But everybody that I have read all see this as God is mirroring, or he is copying an ancient Middle East ceremony of a blood oath treaty. Yeah. Where two parties have an oath, you know, used to, we, in the movies, we, you know, blood brother stuff, cut your hand, his hand, you grasp hands and the blood would intermix. Two parties pass between slain animals in ancient, uh, paganistic environments. They pass between slain animals and that represents that if they break the covenant, they break the agreement, the one that breaks it would face death by dismemberment just like those animals did. Uh, Cut in two, as were the animals. Beheaded as well. That's also there. Okay, And, And you'll find generally examples of this ceremony described in ancient historical manuscripts. So it really did happen. The question is, is did God copy it? Oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. It's usually kings, by the way. Ah, got the whole way almost to the finish line. It's usually kings uh, that that did this, participating in alliances uh, where their armies would, would agree not to kill each other. They'd attack a joint enemy against a common enemy. Uh, effectively, the theological wizards of our time and, and ancient time really too or old times, proposed that God co-opted a barbaric practice, a threat to convince Abraham of his of God's promised gift of eternal life. Does that make sense to anybody? It does to the ones who write the books. So why do I impolitely disagree? And let me count the ways. Number one, God is omniscient. He would never appropriate a pagan method. That's insulting. Or you think he can't, doesn't have an original thought? What's wrong with you? Oh, then they'll say, okay, he originated this, and then the pagans copied it. Well, that's a little better. Ah, but Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 principle. Number two, Abraham, I don't believe, would be persuaded by the killing of animals, if, especially if they represented him. Hi, Abraham, I'm going to let you know that you've got eternal life. First thing I want you to do is represent yourself being cut in two and slaughtered. Especially if he thought he was in jeopardy of being dismembered and tortured and slaughtered. What kind of death is that? Then the three, Jesus Christ is what? He's there because the take me is him. Now we'll get into the triunity of the take three next week. 
But Jesus Christ, He's life. He embodies life. Life comes from life. He is the one who gives life. Christ defeats death. Romans 6, 9, John 5, 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. That's who He is. You gotta know that. I got life here. Number three, for those keeping score, just answered what Abraham saw. I just answered what Abraham saw. What did he see? Anyway, number four, in case you haven't figured that one out. I'll get back to number three. If God were to renege, violate, then God would have to have what done to him. If you think that he co-opted a Middle East covenant system here. You'd have to cut him in half. Good luck with that plan, Bubba. Good luck. What are you thinking here? Uh, how are you going to how are you going to do that? I should say that it's easy to find this view that the penalty, the element that causes God to adhere to the covenant is his fear of death. That's what they say. Well, God is going to die if he breaks this promise. Oh my gosh, I don't even know what to say. And you heard me right. That's what you do. What I but let me give you uh, offer just one little such sentence that I found. Therefore, the sacrificed animal can be seen as typifying Christ. So far, okay. And also typifying the disobedient one who will then suffer the curses himself because of his disobedience. The curses are the slaughtering of his body by the other party. So if God were to break the covenant, he would have to be slaughtered by the other party. And so off the rails they went. They started out okay, typifying Christ, portraits of Christ. We're doing okay. And then boom, into the ditch they went. They, they just... Looked like the, the traffic pattern we had when the snow hit a few days ago. Anyway, John 10, 17 through 18. No one can kill Jesus Christ. He's got to lay it down himself. He can't be killed. What are you thinking? He's life himself. He has the power to lay down his life. And he has the power to resurrect himself. John 2, 19 through 22. How much power is required to rec- resurrect infinity? How many times have I had to ask that question? How about omnipotence has to re- resurrect infinity? And again, I've answered what Abraham saw that made Abraham know. I just did it again. Scores two to zero. The commentarian mess that is made of Genesis 15 usually comes from the Hebrew word kareth. K-A-R-E-T-H. This is fantastically fun. Great fun. You will love this, I think, because I love it and I want you to love it as much as I do. Kareth means kareth. It's a long A. It means to cut off. So, in 1518 of Genesis, it's translated made by the Old King James, which is not accurate. Um, And it says, the Lord made a covenant. But that's not what it really says. It uses that Hebrew word, K-A-R-E-T-H, kareth. It should say, cut off a covenant. No? Because you asked a great question. I answered no before I got made had more fun with that. I should have been slower. What is a cut off covenant, you should ask? He made a cut off covenant. That's what he did. And I just get so excited because... Yeah, you know, this is one of those, well, well, well. Um, and you got to wait for it. What is a cutoff covenant? And you're right. It's circumcision. <laughs> That's what it is. 
Here comes circumcision, boys and girls. Yeah. Yeah. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is what? Circumcision. So you would definitely have a Karath covenant because you have circumcision as the sign of this covenant. You can't solve Genesis 15 without an in-depth analysis of circumcision. Christ is the husband of blood, Exodus 4, 21 through 26. Because of circumcision, Christ the husband of blood, Zipporah lurched into that truth. you got to give her that, though. she got it dead right. As much as everyone now is hoping I go another three hours into the symbol that is circumcision, and I could do it, as you know. Instead, we're going to stay the course with infinity because this is about to take me and the infinity of Genesis 15, which means the smoking fire pot furnace and the flaming torch, Genesis 15:17, have to be infinity. They portray Christ. It must be noted that Abraham did not pass through the animals. And we'll get to Abraham's contribution his free will contribution eventually, but not today. Abraham had horror and he had great darkness and he it fall upon him. Genesis 15, 12. He's in this deep adamic, adamic sleep. Genesis 2, 21. Abraham fought off the vultures. Was he going to win that fight? How many vultures were there? Abraham cut the animals in two, but not the birds. And I asked a while back, last week, I hope, maybe the week before that, were the birds dead? Did Abraham kill the two birds? What's your position? There's a great big argument over that. I think it's easily solved. I have a position. Would you like to know what it is? Wait till next week. Again, I've answered that twice, whether or not Abraham killed the two birds. But Abraham did not pass through the animals. Now, now there's many positions that says he did. He, the, 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 the infinity went through and then came Abraham. And that's, that's how they say, see, it conforms to these ancient Middle East blood slaughter things that they have. But I know he didn't. How do I know that? Because Abraham can't pr- provide anything. Abraham has nothing that will benefit. He is not a, a smoking furnace and he's not a flaming uh, torch. He can't do what they can do. There's no possibility. Those two things represent what? The take me and the take me is what? In- infinite. So those two are also infinite. We have a triunity element here. Abraham's not able to pass through the through the animals. And that's the big Megillah. That's the Genesis 131. Am I over? I got three more minutes. Am I, is that all right? Okay. The big Megillah is Genesis 131. The time of creation ended, ended at the end of the sixth day, Genesis 131. Therefore, what remains? What's left? There's no more creation. What's subsequent to creation? That solves your question of what Abraham saw, saw without me saying it. Only the smoking fire pot furnace and the flaming light of life will pass through. John 5:22, John 8:12, Genesis 1:2 through 5, Daniel 7, Revelation 20:11. Only the pillar of cloud passes through the mist of the animals. That's the pillar of cloud going through. Okay? The pillar of cloud passes through the Red Sea and the waters heaped up on the right hand and on the left. Oh wait, that's a flat hyper 3 Taurus reference. No. Okay. 
Exodus 14, 16, Exodus 14, 19, Exodus 14, 22. The angel of God, Exodus 14, 9, and the pillar of cloud, Ezekiel 1, 4, are put together. Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, Genesis 9, 16, Matthew 26, 39, John 11, 35, John 11, 38, John 11, 33. All of those tell you what's going on here. Notice that we didn't get to the two birds. Next week, maybe. we got more problems to solve before we can get those two birds in here, but we'll get them. Think about how big this is. It's just incredible. Okay, that's all I got. I'm exhausted.